Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Wendy Pentland, a personal coach and a recently retired professor of occupational therapy at Queen's University. I've been thinking for some time that it would be worthwhile doing a podcast that explores the anxieties and fears that so many listeners are telling me they are experiencing around the emerging realities of climate change and how they might better cope with them or channel them in a positive direction. Wendy has worked as a professional coach for more than 15 years, coaching over 500 people in all walks of life, professionals, academics, executives in the private and public sectors, academia, healthcare, and medicine. With all that experience, I thought Wendy would be the perfect person to help us explore our climate change worries. Wendy's coaching approach is grounded in the belief that people are motivated primarily by two desires. First, to fulfill their own potential and second, to make a meaningful contribution to the world, to make a difference. People frequently have difficulty fulfilling these desires because they govern themselves with beliefs and fictions that hold them back and blind them to what may be greater possibilities. I thought I would interview Wendy, but in the end, she interviewed me. It turned out to be the best approach. Instead of listening to Wendy and me talk in very general terms about how we might all deal with our common climate change worries, in this podcast you get to hear a world-class coach help me explore my own personal climate change worries. So, I am standing in for you, the listener, because for coaching to work, it has to be very personal and specific. However, I'm pretty sure that everyone listening will find something they can apply to themselves from this interview. And as with all the interviews in the series, we end up agreeing on the importance of hope, even in the face of the wicked challenges now on our doorstep. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Wendy, thanks so much for making the time to do this podcast interview today. In my introduction, I described your background as a personal coach, but I'm not sure everyone is familiar with what personal coaching is all about. So why don't we start off the podcast with you telling our listeners a bit more about what you do as a personal coach and how it works? Sure. Okay. Delighted. So in a nutshell, personal coaching can be thought of as a conversation-based relationship between the client and the coach who is trained and ideally accredited through a, the International Coach Federation or some body that has some sense of rigor and uh, so you can assure yourself that you have someone who's competent. And you work with people come to coaching typically with an, an issue, a problem, something's not working. And the focus of coaching is to help them make for a positive forward change from where they're at. 
now. A quick overview of how I would work with somebody is that A, it's a process, so it takes place over time. It's not a one-shot fix-it-all conversation. So this podcast won't fix everyone's problems. Sorry, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) And so where I would start with the person is helping them get really clear what is it that's not working and what do you want to be different? And then we spend quite a bit of time at the very beginning helping the client get really clear about what's really important to them, what their values are, what really matters to them. Because the, the, it's predicated on the fact that the more we live congruent with or in integrity with what is really important to us, what our strengths are, what matters to us, the more fulfilled and satisfied we'll be. And most humans, in the course of growing up, lose touch with some of that because we've got to learn how to play the game, to be independent, self-sufficient, all that sort of thing. And then we get to adulthood and we're faced with coaching issues could be macro issues in their life. I'm not feeling fulfilled or I've got to make a tough decision and I know either way the results are there's huge stakes for me in my life. Or it could be they bring to coaching a micro issue like I have to have a conversation with a direct report tomorrow and I find that person really difficult to work with. But in all those cases, the more we can live and behave congruent with what we believe is important and matters, the more satisfied we'll be. And usually we are reluctant to do that when we become adults because we're afraid of being disapproved of or I mean there are all sorts of barriers in place we don't trust ourselves to pull it off etc so yeah that's coaching it's just uh, uh, focusing on where the client is in the present and then helping them move forward and create what it is they're really wanting how is personal coaching different from psychological counseling or psychiatric counseling it's, it's quite different, and yet, if you think of sort of a Venn diagram, there's a little bit of commonness in, at the sort of edges of it. But really, the way I explain it to clients is that therapy also starts with people who are bringing issues and difficulties and challenges, but it, its focus tends to be going back into the past and healing or understanding What happened, how the wounds occurred, and how did I get to this place? The focus of coaching is more starts at the present, and what's going on in the present, and who am I in the present, and what do I want going forward? So in fact, therapy and coaching can work together quite well, and I've done that often with clients where they're finishing therapy and now wanting to get out of the boat on the other side of the river and create a life going forward. So what kinds of concerns and questions does a personal coach typically assist people in exploring and helping them resolve? The sky's the limit, in a way, because life presents all of us with challenges, and some of us manage, tough it through on our own and sort it out, and we may come out with an adequate or a fantastic outcome. At other times, somebody may want to have that second party that's sort of a thinking partner, somebody to challenge them, help them step back and look around the issue from multiple different perspectives. So in a sense, what I said earlier holds true, that 
you might come to a coach with big macro life issues or decisions where career, uh, relationships, a, a total life path, a huge, you're going through a huge transition, divorce, new job, being let go, retirement, a death, whatever. It, it, it could be anything in the, at the big life issue or the smaller life issues. I work with people, I guess I could say the issues I work on cluster in a few different areas. Um, fulfillment and meaning. Like life is great, I have everything on paper, but something's missing. That kind of individual. Communication issues, conflict, leadership skills, the sort of day-to-day -day of life and how to be more effective. So that's the communication issues. And then the third is work-life balance, because I work a lot with mid and senior career professionals and executives, and sometimes that's an issue. I was going to ask as a next question, but given how broad coaching can be, I'm not sure there's an answer, but let's try anyway. What does success look like for someone getting personal coaching? That's a great question. I guess I would say that success for somebody in personal coaching may not be, it may not have a look, but it will have a feeling. It will have a sense of inner knowing they're on the right path. And coaching, in fact, spends, we spend quite a bit of time at the outset, the client and me as a coach, dealing with that very question. What will success look like? How will you know when you've got what you're wanting? So the client really defines what the success will be. And, and from your description of it, being different from uh, psychological counseling, it's success about how I, as your client, might be thinking my future and how to approach it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I guess, if you think of, a, of a, like a, a, a Likert scale, therapy is working with people who would describe themselves as being at about a five or below. Coaching works with people who see themselves at a six and maybe a seven, but they, they want to be closer to an eight or a nine, or heaven forbid, maybe even a 10. Coaching takes the stance that people are creative and resourceful and whole, and we work with them to help them get that closer to the surface. One of the reasons I thought it would be great to have you on the podcast was because a number of listeners have been telling me over the past year about their growing fears and anxieties about climate change and our apparent inability to deal with it as a society. So for example, if I came to you looking for coaching on dealing with my own fears and anxieties about climate change and its future impacts, for example, where would we start? Um, how would you help me explore this? I'm standing in here for a listener that might have mm -hmm. been saying the same thing yeah, to me. Yeah. I guess the, the place that I would first or early on go with you is what do you want? What do you want to be different? And so even hypothetically, if you were to say to me, and I know you've mentioned this to me, that's why we're sitting here in this room, that you're feeling discouraged and sad and fearful and some of those emotions. Is that fair? Yeah. 
So we would, first of all, acknowledge that. Like, what's that like? What, say more. What's going on there? Well, I, I would think for me, um, and, and, and one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is because I figured it would be a way of um, pushing back against my own frustrations and anxieties and fear about a future with climate change is that the, the feeling of not being able to do something in the context of a problem that's so complex and overwhelming. It strikes me that climate change isn't something any one person can fix. It requires many actors. Um, one of the earlier podcast guests I had, Ryan Myers, put it really nicely. He said that climate change was a beast that would need many cuts to kill it. Hmm. Um, that's a bit graphic, but it, I thought it was, it <laughs> means a lot of people doing a lot of things to, to address it. And so, so I guess it, it doesn't really completely get rid of the fear or anxiety, but at least it says, well, we've got to do something. We've got to try and do something or else, uh, you know, you can't complain. Mm, okay. When you talk about the, the metaphor of killing the beast and the beast being climate change, what hit me right there was, well, one way of dealing with it is to slay it. Are there any other possibilities? Yeah, and um, I think not only do we have to deal with the beast that is like stopping the beast from doing its thing, which is causing our atmosphere to heat up and all the other concomitant problems, but that we're going to have to figure out how we as a species and all the other species associated with it are going to adapt mm -hmm. to it. Like there's a couple of big problems here. One is like we're causing it and mm -hmm. we, our species is the one causing it mm -hmm. and we have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about that for the last 20 or 30 years. But the other now is the horrible reality that it's now having real impacts and accelerating impacts, and we're going to have to deal with those as well. So the, the fear and anxiety is not only will this happen, well, it is happening, but now that there are these impacts happening, what are we going to do? Like, what, what's that mean for my, my kid and, and, and his kids in the future? It's, it's sort of this projection of concern that goes beyond me. So I, I think to, to answer your question, it's just, it's not getting rid of the fear. Mm -hmm. It's trying to um, step up and say, well, we've got to do something. Okay. So, because that was a question I was thinking earlier when you said how, you know, the fear and the anxiety and the sadness. And a question could be f for you or for, for uh, anyone listening, how big of a headline do you want your fear and sadness, anxiety about what appears to be an inevitability ahead? How big a headline in the life of your newspaper do you want that to have? Mm -hmm. Or what do you want as some of your big headlines instead? Well, um, the problem with the headlines of how bad things are going to be is that um, I guess the newspaper folks say if it uh, bleeds, it leads. But um, it doesn't solve the problem. Mm -hmm. it, it, it just scares more people or causes them to react and say, well, this can't be true. You know, and, and, and sort of get into acts of denial. But 
I've always been a person that was glass half full mm-hmm. or um, the other, you know, trite saying is better to, to light a candle than curse the darkness. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it just strikes me that if you just give up and get grumpy, definitely nothing is going to happen that's positive, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. there is, <laughs> it's, it's not going to fix anything. If on the other hand, you try to search for some possible solutions or ways of making the situation less terrible, um, less problematic, whatever, then who knows? You might have a chance. And and this is what this whole podcast series is about. Mm -hmm, It's sort mm -hmm. of like, okay, um, I'm going to go find the smartest people I know um, that are doing really constructive, practical things to make a difference and ask them how they're doing it and how others might do it in a similar fashion or, or in a related fashion. And maybe some of it will have an impact out there. Like who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I don't know, 2000 people listening to this podcast. It's not a, it's a sort of a little, a little niche podcast. So not a huge audience, but nevertheless, like one person doing something out there that they might not have been doing before because they heard something from someone, got an idea. Well, that's positive. That's at least positive in their life. Like they can go, well, it was seemed hopeless before, but now maybe if we do this, there's a bit of a chance that something positive will happen. And it may be naive, but it, I, I figure that's better than just sort of giving up. I mm-hmm. think giving up would mm-hmm. really be even more depressing. And and might even hasten the change that yeah, you're very a, much. A, absolutely. Um, so is it fair? I'm just wondering if this is the moment where we've talked before about the woman on the beach. Mm. And I'm wondering if this is a moment where... For example, you're talking about this is I feel like I can make a difference by doing these podcasts and who knows what difference they'll make, but I'm not staying stuck with that. I'm just in faith making the podcasts and hoping some people will pick up. So is this a moment where the yes the, and, the and, and, shows up? And what Wendy is referring to is I've known Wendy for a number of years and she told me a wonderful story, a metaphor about making a difference. And, and this was actually before the podcast, but um, actually Wendy, that metaphor, that story is one of the key underpinning logic for this podcast. This podcast is something that came out of that story. So mm. here, here's the story as I remember, you tell me if I've got it right. A woman is walking along the beach in the early morning and she can see someone off in the distance, what looks like another woman. And the second woman is picking up stones or something off the beach and throwing them into the water. And as the first woman gets closer, she sees that there are thousands of starfish on the beach and the tide has gone out and it's low tide and all these starfish are um, marooned on the beach and it's the sun's just coming up so they're going to dry out and die and she realizes that the the second woman is picking up starfish these starfish and throwing them back into the water and the first woman calls out to the 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 second woman why are you doing that and the, the second woman says well because they're all marooned on the beach. And if, if they don't go back in the water, then they're going to die. And the first woman says, looking around at the thousands of these starfish on the beach, she says, but there's thousands of starfish on the beach. 
And, you know, you're picking up one or two starfish and throwing them back in the water is not going to make any difference at all. And the second woman reaches down, she picks up a starfish and throws it in the water and says, well, it made a difference for that one. And I thought that was such a lovely story because it captured the, at one, <laughs> on the one hand, the absurdity of the situation. Like the first one was actually right. It would not make a difference to all those starfish that don't get thrown back in. But there's something hopeful, just very hopeful about throwing those starfish back in. And who knows, maybe those starfish were about to, you know, send eggs out into the water and create more starfish. So, so it might have more difference than you think. So I just mm -hmm. thought that mm -hmm. in the face of hopelessness, those acts of hope, I think are really important. In fact, the last podcast we did was the theme was hope. Mm. And there was a wonderful quote that I, let me see if I have it here, from Rebecca Solnit. And she is a writer of this lovely book called Hope in the Dark. And let, let me just, I pulled it up because I, I thought it'd be worth quoting. She writes, cause and effect assumes history marches forward, but history is not an army. Sometimes one person inspires a movement or her words do decades later. Sometimes a few passionate people change the world. Sometimes they start a mass movement and millions do. Sometimes those millions are stirred by the same outrage or the same ideal and change comes upon us like a change of weather. All these transformations have in common is that they begin in the imagination in hope. And I th mm. thought that so captured mm -hmm. the starfish story in, mm -hmm. a, in a much more literary way. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like a whole bunch of people on the beach. Yes, and we're, we're trying to inspire more than one throw person throwing out. starfish back into the water, yeah. So an observation I can make, staying with the starfish story. I noticed earlier when you were talking about the big system, the climate change and the, the global level issues and the global level requirements for change, I noticed that's when I heard more of that deceleration, if you will, energy in, in your voice. And I'm wondering if the, the connection I draw here is that the longer or the more we tend to think of the problem of climate change as the beach with the thousand starfish or the huge beast that none of us individually can handle, the longer we think of it at the big, huge system level, the more we keep ourselves feeling disempowered. Like, how can I possibly make a difference? But if you bring it into your immediate circle of influence, where what are the changes I can make? What are the differences I can have? How does that, and it's a rhetorical question, how does that affect my outlook? Yes, and I think that you're you're sensing the change of energy levels when, whenever I think of climate change as a systemic thing, and my training as a biologist before architecture taught me to think in systems, um, mm -hmm. ecological systems, and so forth. So when you think of a big complex system, mm -hmm. it seems daunting, or, or the ability to change it seems daunting, mm -hmm. because we're so insignificant in the face of that those huge systems. 
But then you think of a, a system maybe as a local ecology, like an ecology in your neighborhood or mm-hmm. in a, a le- small lake or pond, and you realize that individual human beings have a huge potential to either help or hurt it, like that, that we do have agency and we do have impact. And so I, I think that's the key thing to focus on. What is it that we can do as individuals or groups, small groups or larger groups, um, in, in human scale, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we can have a positive impact? Because mm-hmm. once we start thinking about it as a huge system, as the world, um, then it becomes um, too daunting. And uh, by the way, just it, it, it occurs to me, that's why I think people are, are so sort of depressed or sort of um, pushed back when they see the IPCC report, the latest report, and talking about if we don't rein in our carbon emissions and we uh, and the temperature rises to 1.5 degrees greater than than the average temperature it was, you know, 20 years ago, we're in big trouble. Well, how how do you act on that? I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if we can find um, smaller scales to act on, then we have some agency. And and I think a lot of the discussions I've been having with podcast guests is about that agency in in a smaller context. Right. There's a quote I can't, for the life of me, remember who said it, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it has, it's something to the effect that all significant change in the history of humans, so to speak, or much of it, has been brought about by a small group. Does this ring a bell with you? A small group of just ordinary people who cared. And so there's, there's the, what can I do? What do I care about? What difference can I make? And then that, that sort of hope of getting together, having sort of an allegiance or a sense of community with other like-minded uh, people. Yes, I, I think that's right on. I, I think ultimately some of the most important changes we've seen have been by individuals leading or gathering a group of other people around them that are inspired by what they're doing or trust what they're doing might have some value or efficacy mm-hmm. okay. and then and following them. So those people have to stand up, even if they don't think there's a lot of hope in doing so. And I, I think, again, that's, that's one of the reasons why, even though we may be frustrated or angry or sad by all the things we're seeing right now that are causing climate change and the effects of climate change, that we still have to stand back and say, okay, what can I do? Or what can I and uh, some of my colleagues that think similarly do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if we bring it back to you, Craig Applegath, what, between now and when you die, what kinds of values or tenets do you want to stay congruent with around climate change? So as a 95-year-old guy, looking back and remembering, you know, back when I was 60, uh, a part of me was pretty discouraged. It was looking really hopeless. What would you, looking back, like to think that you lived true to from then going forward to 95 with regards to climate change? Hmm. Um, 
Well, who knows what I'll really be thinking then. That's but, okay. We won't contact you. <laughs> but, uh, and this will be recording, so I, I'll be able to go back and reflect on this. This is very interesting, sort of like a time capsule. But right now, when I'm thinking, as you were asking the question, what came into my mind was the three important challenges of the 21st century imperative. And, and I, I'm not just bring it back to that because this is a podcast with the name, because I really think everything in the last 20 years of my experience, and I've been pursuing, um, I, I'm an architect and urban designer, and the focus of my work is helping my clients realize their architectural and urban design um, uh, challenges or, or requirements and so forth, but also to do so in a way that is environmentally effective and responsible. And I, I, the, the, the words for it are sustainability and so forth. But it's really trying to help them fit into the environment in an effective way. So in the last few years, I've realized that we've been talking about whatever we do being less harmful to the environment. Um, I mean, just the, 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 the beacon of that would be someone like David Suzuki. Mm. He's all about reducing harm. And he's very critical of our species because of the harm they have caused and are causing. And we could spend an hour here enumerating all the problems, and we're not going to do that. But it's certainly a big issue. But it's also become really apparent over the last couple of years that we have two other things we have to now do. And it's not just, we don't have a choice. We have to do this or it's basically curtains. And that is, we have to figure out how to adapt to climate change because now climate change is pushing back. Like climate's starting to bite and it's going to change in every conceivable dimension the way we exist on the planet uh, in ways that we have, we, we, we are just beginning to understand now. Um, and I think there's a, a third thing we're going to have to do um, and maybe this is a little more idealistic, but I think we have to keep thinking about it anyway. And that is, we're going to have to figure out how to repair and rejuvenate the damage we've already done. So uh, right now, I think those are the three things. Those are um, the three things that I care most about and are looking for ways to realize. So one of the ways is this podcast. That's sort of the... Mm -hmm broad outreach. Another way is, for example, in my practice, we're doing very green, low carbon buildings. We're doing um, mass timber buildings so we can lock up carbon. And others I know are doing the same. So I, I think we have to sort of figure out those three things. And if I'm looking back and I, and I get to 80 or 90, goodness me, that will be the thing I'll ask is, was I able to in any way advance any of those three things? even a bit. And, and I suspect that what I'll look back on is, and see is some of the people that I've either mentored, that work with me, or that are listening to this podcast or reading a, an article I've written, will have done something because mm -hmm. they will be at the beginning of their careers, they'll have agency, and they'll have long, greater longevity at that point. They'll be able to make a difference. So I, I think those are the three things that will be the th will be the sort of benchmarks against which I judge any effectiveness. Okay. And what when you get We'll see though when yeah, we get there. Yeah. 
in your sustainable nursing <laughs> that's home. Right. That's, oh dear, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> that's a, that's someone else's podcast. So, knowing that, what will it take for you to pull yourself out of the mire when over those thirty-five odd years, when you slip down into the place where, that our audience? you're expecting goes into period yeah. and some have and told I, you that, that's, that's what i've heard that they have they experienced that what is it going to take for you to bring yourself back when you slip off course and become discouraged what's it going to take to come back to these three tenets these three well that's a good question and probably worth thinking further about beyond this this podcast certainly mm-hmm. thank you I think um, it, it's so easy to become discouraged and sad about what we see around us. And like, for example, for me, when I say sad, um, I'll just sort of do an aside here about what I think is really sad right now. Mm-hmm. For me as a, as a sort of a, former biologist or someone with biology in my in my blood the thing i i am saddest about in seeing all this happen is that the wonderful natural systems that i learned about when i was a biology student and studying ecology and marine biology so many of the things i studied are being destroyed like i can mm-hmm. remember in some of the courses I took in marine biology, I was, I was going scuba diving in the Caribbean. It was a lovely experience. All those coral reefs, like a third of them are dead now. And by, I think the, the estimate is by mid-century, over half of the coral reefs in the, in, in the oceans are going to be dead. Now that's, that's not only environmentally disastrous, but it's just so sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're mm-hmm. so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, various ecologies and you know, wilderness systems that, that I've come to love are under real threat, so they may not exist. Like the boreal forest is this amazing um, thing that absorbs so much carbon. And as weather or, or weather conditions change because of climate change, there's probably going to be more wildfires and so forth. And so they will take their toll. Anyway, it, it just produces us not only alarm and concern we must do something and how do we do it but also this sort of ah that's sort of sad mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it was yeah. so beautiful and it's yeah. it's very much an aesthetic thing i sometimes think the whole story of adam and eve was really not about what happened but what's happening right now i mean we're we're being ejected from Eden and who is ejecting mm. is us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Maybe it's the apple of knowledge, <laughs> fossil fuel, whatever. But we really are sort of having to depart something that's truly beautiful. And so I think that is, that is sort of in the back of my mind as I'm sort of beavering away on trying to figure out, you know, strategies for reducing harm or strategies mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. adapting. Um, I don't have an answer for how we'll pull back from that, that sadness, um, except to say, you just have to keep pushing on. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, there's another quote. I, I, there's a few quotes that I use within these podcasts because they become so emblematic of things I care about. 
Um, one of them, and I've goodness, uh, listeners are going to be so tired of this. I've used it too many times, but I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to use it again. And it is by Vaclav Havel. Do you remember Havel? He was the first president of Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. after the communist regime fell, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he had been a playwright before um, he was president. And he had been jailed many times for speaking his mind through his plays mm-hmm. about the silliness and fraudulentness of the communist regime in Czechoslovakia and in the Eastern Bloc countries. Anyway, he was elected first president of Czechoslovakia, and he was a real character. I mean, what an amazing thing to have a uh, a playwright and a writer as 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 the president of your country. And in one of the early press scrums when he was elected, he was asked by someone in the, in the audience, one of the reporters, are you an optimist? And he said, no, I'm not an optimist in the sense that I think everything will go right, but neither am I a pessimist in the sense that I think everything will go wrong. I'm hopeful. For without hope, there is no future. There's no life. Mm. So I've always thought that that captured it because... It's hard to be optimistic, and there are things that will make you think twice about being pessimistic, but the real thing that keeps you going forward is hope. And mm. I, I think that's, that's the key thing. So it's like, yeah, you can be sad one day, but like, just, just keep pushing on because there's no other choice really, right? And hope in what? Um, well, I think hope is one of those vague feelings that, is, that can pull you forward, but I think projecting that hope on maybe we can get our act together enough that we can make a difference or we can in some way adapt to what we've caused and pull back in a positive way. Like I think the world is so complicated and things can change so much without us expecting it. The certainty people have about how bad or good the world is going to be is, is I think misplaced. I, I, the best example, I'm at the tail end of the baby boom. So I was in high school when the Iron Curtain was still up and the Berlin mm. Wall was still up. And I can remember, I think it was 1989 when it came down, like when it opened up and the East Germans started letting the East Germans go into West Germany. And then within the next two or three weeks, the Germans just took down the wall. Mm. And what was so momentous about that was not just the wall coming down, the physical barrier coming down, but the, the fact that everyone's mindset, uh, that belief, firm, firm belief, and I can remember this just not even being something you thought about. There was the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries. They were there, and the West was here, and there was a wall, and that was that. Like, it, it was a reality that wasn't going to change. We thought... Everything over there, because we were told everything over there was, you know, corrupt and weird and didn't work or whatever, mm-hmm. but it was there. It was a re- reality. And so when that happened, you thought, hmm, that reality was just a reality we made in our minds. And so maybe things that we think are absolutely impossible to change can change overnight. So it's sort of that notion of the wall, um, and then other things, you know, you see like uh, smoking, like when I was a kid, all the adults around me smoked. And then within 20 years, because of concerted campaign to stop it, it's very rare that people are smoking. 
So there, there are possibilities where groups of people can influence change over time and have a significant impact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I could go on to name some of these, but I, I think it's just, it's as foolish to give up hope as to have hope. I mean, anyone that says you're being foolish for having hope, I'd say, well, look at the instances where having hope actually paid off. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about giving up hope, my sense is sometimes people don't give it up, but they lose it. Yes. And it becomes an off-ramp that before they know it, they've taken the despairing loss of hope off-ramp. And so what, just off the top of our heads, let's brainstorm here. What can bring people back to that more, that place where there's a sense of hope that humanity can change? That yes, Things are shifting and changing, but we can adapt. That's a really good question. Um, and I'll maybe preface yeah. it, Craig, by saying I'm hearing in our conversation there's a lot of talk about what I can do, meaning the individual. And so to me, there's some huge potential resource for all of us in accessing each other when we start to lose hope. Yes, and as you said that, um, I was thinking that one of the things I find when I am getting um, depressed or, or I, I, I'm looking at the hope off-ramp <laughs> as something that's maybe worth taking that day, um, what can rekindle it is someone else whom I admire or, and respect just tuning me up. So someone pointing out something positive that's happening. And usually it comes in the form, they don't know they're tuning me up. But Is it prefaced by you You actually confessing? No, to me, not a, always. Not always. Because okay. I, I try, what, one of my jobs is to be in the studio, I'm in Dialogue Studio, is um, I'm a principal there, so I have to be positive. Everyone's looking to the principles. If nothing else, they have to be positive about the future because if we're not positive, then that's not a good thing for everyone around us. So I'm, I'm bound to determine to be positive. And so I'm not going to be telling people that I'm not feeling very hopeful that day. But what will happen is if there is a day when I'm feeling like, oh, geez, this stuff is almost impossible. What, what are we doing here? Um, I mean, what are we doing about climate change or whatever? Someone like um, Charles Marshall, hi Charles, if you're listening, um, will come by and say, Craig, look at this really cool article here about a new zero carbon technology that I was reading. I think you'll find this really interesting because imagine if a whole bunch of buildings started using this. I mean, this could really scale. This could really make a difference. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, yeah, that's... that could really make a difference. And, and all of a sudden, the sort of the hope off-ramp just sort of disappears from the highway. And the highway is about the future and we're going to figure out how to do this. Back zero, on course. Back on course. Zero carbon technology. And, and in fact, maybe that's one of the challenges is just keeping those off-ramps out of out of visibility mm-hmm. and having instead or not out of, not so much out of visibility but having more compelling 
highways, like future visions of where we're going and how we might get there so that other people can be on the same highway. And I think this metaphor is getting a bit, <laughs> bit crowded. It's not very here, good for the environment to no, be on a highway, not, Craig. But it's got electric, it's cars, electric cars and LRTs. <laughs> but to come back for, to it for one sec, I'm mindful that whenever one takes any off-ramp or any fork in the road, and we're presented with them all the time, it's a choice. And choice is a huge part of coaching, hel helping clients get to the place where they realize we're making thousands of choices every day. Sometimes many of them we don't even realize. Not just choices what to do, but choices what to pay attention to, where, where to, you know, energy follows attention. And if we let our attention get absorbed by certain things, then our energy, good, negative, discouraged, whatever, will go there. And so maybe part of it is accepting that there will be off-ramps, there will be days of down, there will be reports that come out that are discouraging, and recognizing that at that moment, I'm at a choice point as to what to do with that. And we've, we've talked before about Viktor Frankl's work mm -hmm. around choice. Yes. Yep. And, and that out of his experience in the concentration camps and observing many, many, many people in horrific circumstances who made, handled it in very different ways, he started to realize that humans' ability to choose our own attitude in the face of whatever is the last of the human freedoms. Mm -hmm. And no one can take it away from you. And so I wonder, you know, to what, what extent that we're always at choice, even when it comes to climate change and what appears to be behind the Berlin Wall of the mammoth of climate change, that we're always at choice about what we want to do with that in the near term of our own life, our attitude, what we do, what we pay attention to, who we hang out with. Yes, and, and I think that choice is something worth remembering when we find ourselves being discouraged. Mm -hmm. I, I think listeners in emails to me and in conversation have talked about that concern, and I, I've never really characterized it in our, my conversation with them as that choice. And I guess it's a matter of keeping that in mind because given the fact this is not going away, this will be with us for the rest of our lives mm -hmm. in various modifications and especially in, in its impacts at climate change, that is, we will have to keep making the choice again and again as various things um, confront us. Mm -hmm. So keeping that in mind is actually a, a really good idea. And, and I was joking about Charles coming and, and presenting something exciting and getting me back on the right highway. But uh, that, that's certainly real. But when there's not that Charles, when there's not but that person, you have to make to a choice. But your choice was to go and talk to Charles. Yes, and that yes. was a choice well, yeah, that ended up Maybe being... sometimes he'll come to talk to me just at the right moment, as it seems. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it really is a choice. When, when uh, Aside from the circumstances, we just sort of have a down day. Um, 
making the choice to deal with these big problems um, is a personal choice. Mm-hmm. It, it, but you know what? I think there's another dimension to this that's worth talking about, and that is meaning. Um, one of the benefits of having to wrestle with that choice and wrestle with maybe I won't make much difference, but maybe I can make a little bit of difference by the kind of work I do or the podcast we do or whatever is in itself meaningful and gives meaning to life. Like if I look back over the last 30 years, some of the most meaningful things that I recall are not uh, positions I had or um, buildings that I designed, although they're fun to think about. It's in the people that I have met and worked with in some way to help move the needle on environmental harm or Mm. climate change. And it just seems deeply meaningful to have been part of that Mm -hmm. in a way that very few things are. It's deeply meaningful to be a father and raising a son or a, a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, that's a meaningful thing to do. And it's meaningful to have good, deep friendships with other people. And that's meaningful. But in terms of the bigger life around us, uh, our public lives, having something to connect me to the bigger world is, and I think for all the people that I talk to, the people that I know listening to this podcast that have talked to me, I think they also have a sense of purpose and meaning in this. So it's not a wasteland. <laughs> it's mm-hmm, not impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of value in it. And I think that in itself is one of the things that when you, when you see that off ramp, when you have to make the decision, you think, yeah, but this is meaningful stuff we're doing. This, this has purpose, and maybe we won't succeed. In fact, probably by the laws of probability, we won't succeed. But you know what? That's okay. There's meaning in trying to approach it in this way, and that's the Viktor Frankl mm-hmm, mm-hmm. point, right? I mean, yep. that, that's a wonderful example. And there's a duality, in a sense, to whether we succeed or not. Mm. Maybe the definition Fair. of success is going to change over time. As recognition that we're not going to go back to the way it was in the 50s on all the, the measures. But the, what, what is the definition of success for each individual moving forward? And maybe as long as we hold the definition of success as being stopping it all and making it all sustainable and all okay. It re- sort of reminds me of the Buddhist, you know, and I'm not a Buddhist, but, but I, from what I understand of Buddhism, it, it talks about how our clinging and unwillingness to accept change is what causes our suffering. And life has suffering, which is the other Buddhist tenet, so you can't get rid of it all. But in being mindful of what am I trying to hold on to that maybe I need to begin to let go of and move into the present and the future and and what's success going to be going forward that will maybe bring not only some peace, but increased effectiveness. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, 
over the last few years, I've changed my sense of what success looks like for everything related to the environment and climate change and environmental deterioration that we're causing as a species and so forth. And I think it's such a large-scale problem that we don't have the levers of control over our population, what it does. It's just not something that is possible. So we're going to have to um, figure out what we do at a much smaller scale, at a scale of our families, our friends, our communities, maybe regional, maybe national, who knows. But I think that it's going to be about as much about figuring out how we adapt to the new realities that are happening to us. Mm -hmm. That's the task at hand. And I don't mean giving up on pulling back on harming the environment at all. Mm -hmm. I just think that now that is going to be combined with um, having to understand that the systems in the biosphere are changing. They're no longer going to be mm -hmm. the same. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. There's so many different parameters that will be changing. We have no idea what that will create, mm -hmm. but we're going to have to work together as humanely as possible. One of my fears, we talked about fears and sadness, is that when things change, people get cranky. And when I say cranky, they get violent, miserable, and bad stuff happens at a societal level. Look at one million climate refugees. Well, there were refugees, but it also had to do with climate. The Syrians um, entered Europe a couple of years ago. And think of all the political havoc mm -hmm. that caused. That's mm -hmm. a million people. By mid-century, there are going to be 250 million climate refugees. Mm -hmm. Imagine the impact that's going to have around the world. And I, I think one of the biggest challenges will not just be adapting to new weather conditions and new storm conditions. I think humans are very ingenious and can come up with strategies for doing all sorts of things, but it's the, the social conditions and what we're going to do to mm -hmm. one another mm -hmm. that I find the most disconcerting mm -hmm. and, and, and for concern. And so that's something that I'm thinking we have to be very careful about how we foster working together. I, I should say not be very careful. We have to really try all means possible to gather people that are decent and humane together and make sure we don't allow the darker sides of what it is to be human to come to the fore. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they can. Mm -hmm. I mean, they keep happening throughout history and they will most likely again, but it's one of our biggest responsibilities will be that, not just dealing with the physical or the environmental yeah yeah, yeah 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 and 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 that's a that's a new world we face i mean especially canadians we've been so blessed with such a wonderful calm society for the last you know 100 years mm -hmm. we just don't know anything about this sort of darker side of what we can do as a species and the sense of an infinite natural environment oh yes us, yeah. other yeah nations so don't that's have. yeah that's that's changing. By the way, one of the really interesting things that I'm exploring right now, another reason for hope is sort of a project on the side table. I'm trying to figure out um, how best to get going. And that is, I think 
Um, Canada is extremely well situated right now in the fact that we have 37 million people in Canada. And as Doug Saunders in his, in his latest book, Maximum Canada, points out, to be a sustainable economy, we need 100 million people um, so that we can make, process, trade, and so forth to have a stimulate the economy internally. Um, that's put that in contact with 250 million climate refugees that are going to be occurring over the next 25 years. You think there's got to be an overlapping set, right? Of this is a really wonderful opportunity to help, you know, make our economy sustainable and also contribute positively to this terrible humanitarian crisis. So one of the big projects for Canada, I think, or for people in Canada that understand what's happening, is to get together and figure out how we can accommodate millions, literally millions of refugees, climate refugees, over the next 25 years, in a way that doesn't disrupt our social fabric. That in, instead of disrupting our social fabric, actually contributes to building and reinforcing the most positive dimensions of our social fabric. That's an exciting project. And that's something that I think, when you think, oh, it's this climate change stuff is hopeless. You say, yeah, but, you know, there are some things that we can do. And here's one of them. So as I talk to people about this, everyone's like, yeah, that's, that's something we should be thinking about. So there's all sorts of different types of people. Like imagine educators in community colleges that they're seeing the demographics fall. And community colleges in Ontario, some of them are going to be shut. Well, isn't that a perfect landing spot? I mean, they've got residences, they've got training, English second language. You could have uh, refugees landing there over two years, being understanding the language skills, moving into society. There's possibilities for uh, accommodating with healthcare. There's all sorts of different levers that we could coordinate and make this a positive thing as opposed to a disruptive thing where you get populist, fraudulent political actors starting to take mm -hmm, advantage mm -hmm, of it. Mm -hmm. So I think those are the things we need to be looking for is, yeah, this is a really big problem like we've never seen before. Okay, so what are some of the things we can be doing that are positive, constructive, humane, and contribute? So, and you can tell by my enthusiasm that this is a, just a nightmarish problem, but there is some hope that within the sort of bounds of that huge problem, there are some opportunities. Yes, huge opportunities. And, and I noticed like your energy level picks up as you talk about it. And I guess coming back to the choice piece, it's like, what choice does any one individual have in the face of this? What choice is? We can give up, do nothing, or some combination of the two step away and ignore that kind of category of choices. Or we can choose to do something and that, that something would then need to be congruent with what you really care about or where you have access to levers. Like you have access to, to use your metaphor, levers that, that say someone else might not. Yes, everybody uh, yeah. has some places they yeah. can exert influence. Yes, and, and, and I think a lot of people don't realize how much power they really have. Um, 
it 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 may may seem like they're powerless, but just by connecting and meeting with other people that care the same way, that's power, because it all of a sudden raises concern among more than themselves. People in any kind of professional situation have all sorts of opportunities to connect with others through their professional associations. People in um, government bureaucracies have understandings of how to create and, 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 and uh, effect policy. And they may not be doing it now, but they have understandings of how to do it. So everyone has the ability to contribute something. And I think on their own, it probably doesn't amount to much, but if they see it in the context of combining with others, it can actually be quite mm-hmm. constructive. Mm-hmm. And and the staying, even without the doing, the staying silent? Yes, in itself. In and of itself. Yes, I mean, problem. we lead by example. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it takes tremendous courage to stand up and say or do certain things, even around climate change, because it flies in the face of profit or whatever. Um, the community that you're in may be saying, yeah, but... We'll lose on this front if we take a stand on the climate change front or try to be more responsible. So it takes guts and it takes courage to speak up. But the more you have that, um, that culture of silence or people abdicating or being afraid of speaking up, then So, so as the a momentum. coach, what do you see some of the biggest impediments being to people speaking up or just acting the way they want to act. They, they Say they decide, you know, this is something that I care about and yet maybe I'm not the right person or I'm not in the right position. What do you see as, as ways to allow people to do what they want to do? Uh, is, that, is that a question uh, sometimes comes up? Well, it's almost at the root of what most people bring to coaching. Then, then like, you really like should be telling us way. about how to get beyond those restrictions we feel we have on acting and putting what mm-hmm. we want to act on. Mm-hmm. And for every person, it's different. But it runs often in the, to give you an answer and not sort of beg off it by just saying, well, everybody's different and so I can't answer it. What's in the way for people? This is assuming they've got clear on what it is they want to say and what they, or what they believe in and what they want to say. And that in and of itself sometimes is kind of confusing. And we look at politicians and we look at corporate leaders, they would be prime examples. But so would be the leader of a family and whether they're choosing to practice and consistent with what they believe in environmentally. Um, But anyway, what can be in the way once they're clear about it is not trusting those around them that they will be shunned or dropped or disapproved of or demoted or left behind. Um, so, uh, And then the self-trust that they can actually stand up and articulate this clearly and convincingly and not, in quotes, look like a fool or a Pollyanna or something. So there's both trust of of themselves and trust that that they they can be effective and that the environment around them they can handle it even if the environment pushes back and disapproves or looks the other way or ignores them or whatever so what's in the way of speaking up 
It's the same stuff that was in the way of speaking up when you saw something that wasn't right when you were 25, 35. We see it all the time, and we choose to look the other way. Or speaking up can, and also can feel quite dangerous, Mm -hmm. especially in a political environment where you might be risking your family. But what about just enacting or getting involved or exploring um, things that you're not familiar with? I think sometimes... One of the problems is people think, I'm not an expert. I don't know how to do this. Like, mm. it's too too big and hard. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, h- how do people get beyond that? What, if I said to you, I'm not sure, I'm not an, I'm not an expert on this. What, um, I can't do anything. What are you an expert on with respect to all of this? What are you good at? What are you effective at? The bit about where you said a moment ago, like, it's too big, why I can't possibly do it. It reminds me when I was an academic supervising graduate students, there was a little book that went around for a while. It was a little paperback and it was called How to Finish Your Thesis in 15 Minutes a Day. Ah. And of course, everybody was attracted to know more about this little paperback, but the essential message of it was don't think of it as your doctoral thesis. Think of it as today I'm going to sit down and start for 15 minutes. If I want to leave after 15 minutes, I can. But you'll probably, typically, once you're over the hurdle and sitting there, you'll stay there for an hour or two minimum. But the key is don't th- to not think of it as this huge, what did you call it, uh, messy problem or, or whatever. Yeah. Bring it into... Insurmountable messy yeah, problem. Yeah. yeah, it's not a beast. Yeah. It's not... It, don't think of it in the entirety of the beast, but in... The, the sort of, today the beast is going to go here and eat this cornfield, so what are we going to do to keep him out of that cornfield? And, and so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think the kinds of things you're talking about, how to help people, it does sometimes, it, it is to, to the old break it down. The other thing I was mindful of as you were talking there for a moment, Craig, is when you talked about climate change as a problem. And just sort of to bring our attention for a moment to, you know, how we language things has huge power. And so if we call, for example, climate change a problem, we'll approach it as a problem, which needs to be solved. solved. And so I don't know, what else could climate change be regarded as? I don't have an answer. I'm just... Yeah. Um, well, certainly, uh, I, I would be very uncomfortable as calling it an opportunity because it comes with so many calamitous impacts, but... Climate change is an outcome of what? It's an outcome of our behavior in terms of using carbon um, Which is an outcome of fuels. what? Uh, our... Our contemporary society are using energy. Which is characterized by what values? We're talking super simple here, right? We're yeah, talking by, like by, a total well, moped I, I th- pass I th- over. Yeah, I think, it's, <laughs> I, I think it's the classical problem of, yes, we want to change uh, and reduce climate change, but uh, I can't give up my car because I've got to take my kid to hockey practice or... You know, I need I, a new I, I, and by the way, I want to, yeah, and I want to go to Florida. We've always gone to Florida. By the way, I don't go to Florida, but um, it, it, it's sort of 
you know, breaking habits that I've been long time forming and we've gotten used to mm-hmm. all of these things that actually have these negative impacts. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe it's, it, it can be looked at as an opportunity to shift behaviors in a way that won't feel punishing, but instead potentially liberating. And I'm not being facetious when I say that. I, um, one, <laughs> one of the things my wife Jane and I are doing is we're at a certain stage now where everything in our house that isn't necessary, we're looking at getting rid of. And I know this is sort of part of popular culture right now. There's TV shows about this, but that's not the reason. It's just we look around and we think, oh my goodness, like there's so much stuff and books and things. And you just think, what is all this stuff? And having more stuff now is just not attractive. We've reached an age where and this is classical. I think the, the retailers don't like anyone over 55 or they don't not dislike them, but they don't aim for them because there are, everyone's like, I think we've got enough stuff now. Um, but maybe there's an opportunity to shift into um, behaviors and experiences that are not based on things and are based more on relationships and meaningful interactions with family and friends um, And I know this sounds naive, but at the same time, all the things that I know I and my family and my friends really enjoy don't have anything to do with things. Um, They have to do with talking about a book or having a discussion or having a dinner. I guess that's a thing, but it's it's a consumable thing. Um, So I think we will not suffer a lot by changing our our world of um, materialism um, the way I think a lot of people mm-hmm. think we will. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe the opportunity is shifting gears. Mm-hmm. Um, that in itself has its own challenges, obviously. I mean, economies are very, um, uh, very firmly rooted things. And people, there's a lot of um, vested interests. And I say that in the, in the technical uh, meaning of the term, as opposed to critical meaning of the term. Um, so maybe it's a time to reflect on what's important in life mm-hmm. and how we can help get there. So where are we now from when we started? Well, I'm hoping that some of our conversation has, has provided our listeners with some ideas about how they might deal with their own concerns, fears, sadness, frustrations. I think it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you about these things. It's certainly, it's certainly giving me some insights about my own concerns and also that the notion of hope, uh, the, the on-ramp, off-ramp, and uh, actually, more importantly, it being a personal decision, mm-hmm. uh, Victor Frankl's notion. And uh, I think maybe I should ask if there's anything else you'd like to add to the discussion because I think it's, it's, it's a nice point to to bring the conversation to a close is there anything that you might want to add the one thing i that crossed my mind that i'll share is you were talking about you and your wife purging a bit of the stuff and and relating that back to sort of our acquisitional materialistic society and how really when you boil it all down relationships are so important and 
the occupational therapist in me, which is what I was in a former life, would also add that the making, the doing, the restoring, the repairing, that, that we, we seem to view things now as um, they become dated or broken and we pitch them, and versus repairing, remaking, the, that, that sort of working with the hands and um, at the same time you're preserving something in the environment, but you're also coming back to uh, who we are as people and, and expressing ourselves not only through relationships, but through the making, doing, creating that, that some of that offers. And, and I, I feel saddened sometimes at all of this mass new mm-hmm. chrome and laminate yeah. that comes up and gets <laughs> thrown away um, versus the beautiful old stuff that's around or the pleasure people get in repairing something uh, that doesn't work versus shopping and spending to buy new. And, and, I, and I suspect that the repairing is not just a functional thing. It's, it's investing some meaning in what you're repairing. If I, you love doing yeah. that. Yeah, and, and it, I can remember my grandfather I had a workshop and when I was a kid, I would go and visit him. And one of the things, I guess... Grandfathers with grandchildren, they have to find things to do to occupy in their own mind while they're looking after their grandchild. But I remember one of the things that we would do is we get out bent nails that he would have pulled out of boards. He was constructing something or taking something apart, or there was a crate that had come and there were nails. And he would get these bent nails and there'd be a whole bunch of them. And we would work for two or three hours just hammering the nails straight. And yakking away, probably. Yeah, talking and away. Not and not yakking, not, but not being talking. in relationship Yeah, together. it's just like it was, actually he was a very quiet person, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of hammering and not much talking. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but I, I remember it as, it felt meaningful, and it, there the nails sat on the, the bench. In fact, they're still there. Um, and I look at them, and, and, and if you look at them as like a talisman of, of what your life is about. When I was young, they were meaningful because my grandfather, who I held in high esteem, was doing this. It must be important. And when I was a young man and I had a career on the go, I'd look at the nails and i think, what a waste of time that was. Like, where does someone get the time to bang away on nails? Oh my goodness, that was another time and day. And now I look at them and think, oh... Okay, that's a, a very Zen activity. It's, it's very meaningful because he was probably thinking about what was happening. He, he was at the university, what was happening at the university, and maybe there was issues. And instead of just sort of thinking about it, he was doing something that took the energy or the issue out on these poor little nails. And um, created nails. And he could created nails that could work. Yeah, sure, yeah, they were perfectly functional nails. Um, so I think that. That is a dimension of life that also had to do with a time that was slower. And maybe um, our world could benefit from a little bit of slowing down. So um, I don't think I have time for hammering nails right yet, though. But I can see the value You'll find something. It. Maybe after another 20 years. Maybe when I'm 90, it's time to hammer those nails. Um, Wendy, thank you very much You're very for your time. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and for the great coaching session. Thank you very much. You're totally welcome. Pleasure. 
You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. Until next time, thank you for listening.